0: We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit, we have, we have stop. We have stop at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.
1: All right, Houston. Go Houston. All right, you are in go for T.L.I., over. Roger, we stand, we're in go for T.L.I.
2: Roger. Please be informed there is a Santa Claus. This is The Space Shot, episode 378, Apollo 8, Earthrise, and I'm John Mulnix. Before we jump into some Apollo 8 history, let's chat a little bit about some news. SpaceX capped off 2018 with a record 21 launches. This milestone is a great lead up to 2019, which should be busier than ever for SpaceX. The launch on Sunday, December 23rd, was the first time a Falcon 9 took a GPS satellite to orbit. Congrats to the entire SpaceX team on a record-breaking year. I'm recording today's episode on the 50th anniversary of when astronaut Bill Anders captured one of the most iconic photos in human history, Earthrise. Apollo 8 is a mission that's special for multiple reasons. It was the first time a Saturn V rocket was used to launch humans into space. It was the first time humans left Earth orbit. And most importantly, it was the first time humans were able to explore another world, even if it was from orbit. The Earthrise photograph shows us our true place in the universe. We're living on a small, brilliant blue dot that's floating in the vast, lonely expanse of our solar system. It's equal parts humbling and inspiring. Take a moment to reflect on the fact that the only three humans not in this picture were in a spacecraft orbiting our moon. Everyone the astronauts ever knew, save for each other, were on that distant blue dot. For today's episode, I'd like to revisit a conversation I had with the Cosmosphere's CEO, Jim Remar, last December. We talked about Apollo 8, and Apollo 17, and I think this conversation is a great way to kick off the celebration for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8. The next two episodes of The Space Shot will be the upcoming two-part 13th episode for the Cosmosphere podcast. You'll hear audio from the Earth Rising panel with astronauts and flight controllers, plus my chat with some space hipsters that were in Hutchinson for the event. Before I leave you with the interview with Jim, I'd like to wish all of my listeners here on Earth a Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to the show and for engaging all the time on Facebook. It's one of the best Christmas presents I think I could ask for. Thank you. Today I'm talking with Jim Remar. We're going to be going over Apollo 8 and Apollo 17. Welcome back to the podcast, Jim. Thank you. My pleasure. It's good to have you back. It's the, you're the first repeat guest, so oh, that's kind of cool. I'm excited and honored. <laughs> so we're going to start out Apollo 8, the first mission
3: around the moon. Talk to us a little bit about the history of that mission. Sure. Uh, uh, Apollo 8 is is probably one of my favorite if if not my favorite mission. Um unfortunately it gets lost in the, in the luster, uh, of Apollo 11. Um, but the first time that human left the gravitational pull of earth and, and went to another planet when they went around the moon. Um, and so for me, that was an incredible mission because up to that point, we had only experienced Leo yeah. and not knowing what was going to happen. And even if we could get to the moon and, and back um, was a pretty awesome undertaking. And the fact that they did so and, and did it successfully uh, was incredible. And, and it obviously uh, was a precursor and, and paved the way for uh, the Momentum or the monumental undertaking of Apollo 11.
2: Well, I mean, talking about precursors, Apollo 8 wouldn't have happened had it not been
3: for Mercury and Gemini. Absolutely. So, absolutely, Apollo 8 um, obviously owes its execution and and success to the the Mercury and and Gemini programs. Um, Mercury really paved the way um, for humans to to begin exploration when they uh, determined that humans could work in leo undertake uh, uh, different types of testing and stresses and then gemini was was really what paved the way for the lunar missions without gemini there would have been no apollo 11 or yeah. apollo 8 for that matter
2: and speaking of gemini if you're if you're here at the Cosmosphere, there's gemini 10 gemini, yes okay. 10, 10 all right yep. so you've got to see that that's one of my favorite ones to look at when i'm here Last time we talked you talked about how the white rooms your favorite mm-hmm. space artifact was that one used for we're, Apollo i are not 8? sure. Okay. So there were there were three
3: <laughs> white rooms. Okay. And unfortunately there is nothing that indicates which missions Came through the respective white rooms. So, uh, unfortunately, there's no paper trail that said, "Okay, missions A, B, and C came through this white room." Uh, so we we like to joke that you know all the historic missions Apollo eight, <laughs> Apollo eleven, Apollo thirteen all all came through ours. But uh, unfortunately, we we aren't for sure which ones.
2: I think that's okay. You can you can cherry pick. Yeah, the good absolutely.
0: missions. absolutely. <laughs> oh my God!
1: Look at that picture over there. Is bird coming up? Wow, that's pretty. Hey, don't take that. off schedule. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color, quick. Oh, man, that's crazy. Where is it? Quick. Mm-hmm. Just grab me a color. A color exterior. There you yeah. That one? Yeah, I'm looking for a walk. C-368. Anything. Quick. Here. Yeah, okay. hey, I've got it right here. Let's, let me get up here. It's not clear. I got a phrase that's very clear right here. Go? Take several of Take several of them. Here, give it to me three. Let me just get the right set in here. Now, just calm down, my hey, boy. Oh, I got a rate. Right. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. 250 at F11. Okay. Now, oh, there's very exposure. I right did. There. I picked you up there. You sure we got it now? Yeah, we'll get we come up again.
2: I think. One of the things for the Apollo Eight mission was the Earthrise photo, mm-hmm. and downstairs there's a lot of there's a collection of right. cameras right. and film
3: canisters. Talk to me about like the importance of those artifacts. Sure. Well, without the photography of the Apollo missions, those of us who remain on Earth in in generations to come uh, would not have been able to fully grasp or understand what took place. Uh, The images that the astronauts captured are some of the most historic, some of the most beautiful, known to man. And so it's an opportunity for us to be able to, A, showcase the hardware that was used. Because what people don't realize is the astronauts had to become almost experts in photography, understanding the camera. For the still imagery, they were using the Hasselblad, which is a very sophisticated, high-end camera. Um, They were utilizing a number of different lenses and configurations, apertures. So not only did the astronauts have to understand the engineering behind the spacecraft, but they had to understand the engineering and and how the camera functioned. And, And that allowed them to take beautiful images and... Fortunately, the Cosmosphere houses the the world's largest collection of of photographic hardware. We have over a 1,000 pieces in our collection, many of them flown. It is believed that we have the camera that took Earthrise, though we're not quite sure that that is accurate. Um, The camera in our collection that allegedly took Earthrise is... A silver configuration of Hasselblad, okay. um, which is actually the the lunar configuration. So what we don't know is whether Apollo 8 was testing the lunar camera in uh, lunar orbit. But nonetheless, uh, the, the camera collection that we have and, and the visitor is able to see is is second to none. The thing with the cameras, it was different types of film, too. Yeah, it was absolutely. like the
2: ectochrome there was different types like everybody knows like the, the kodachrome right that's like kind of the when you think about retro photographs it's kodachrome right. right that was a variant
3: of kodachrome did kodak make it specifically for nasa that that is correct okay. and it was a, a larger format so it was 70 millimeter film um, as opposed to probably what most people recognize as yeah. the uh, 35 millimeter big
2: difference in image
3: quality absolutely
2: so I mean that's pretty remarkable. Even if that camera you know didn't take Earthrise, that's still pretty incredible. To it think is. About.
3: Uh, you know some of the cameras in our collection um, include flown on the Apollo seventeen mission, Apollo thirteen mission. In fact, we have one of the only cameras that was brought back from the lunar surface. Uh, we have a camera that flew to the lunar surface, was used on the lunar surface, and then returned by Alan Shepard on the Apollo 14 mission. Wow. Um, so one of, I think, only three cameras came back from from the respective Apollo missions, because typically what they would do is take the, the film magazine and return those, but to decrease weight in the lunar module, they would leave the, the camera body yeah. and the lenses on the surface of the moon better to take back moon rocks absolutely <laughs>
2: <laughs> gotta have that so we'll be we'll be talking about apollo 17 here in just a few minutes is there anything else that you you know your favorite part
3: of apollo 8 there there are three things that that resonate with me um one is is the tli maneuver um that was the first time uh that they had done the, the trans lunar insertion um what really makes that special is we have the, the checklist uh, in our collection um, that that was used in the command module for that maneuver. The other two things, one obviously the Earthrise. Regardless of, of who you believe in, if you if you believe in a in a higher being, seeing that picture, that yeah. image, has to allow you to know that that whatever that higher being you believe in is, exists. Um, the beauty and the majesty of that picture is, is awe-inspiring. The other, uh, and again, um, regardless of, of what your denomination of faith is, the reading from the book of Genesis during that, that holiday period, that was something that I think... Regardless of, of your beliefs, you can appreciate, and and was very emotional uh, yeah. for for not only the astronauts but but for those uh, listening back on Earth. Those those three things to me really inspire me as as it relates to that mission. And again, unfortunately, it, it gets overshadowed by the the subsequent Apollo 10 and, and Apollo 11. But uh, just to just to think about what those three astronauts felt, the crew felt, as they began their voyage to the moon and and not knowing what was going to happen, given that this was the first time. um, The the emotions had to have been running the count. But then to to have them return safely back to Earth, um, setting the stage for what ultimately was, was mankind's greatest achievement.
0: The permit, and it was so. And God called the permit in In the evening and the morning.
2: So today we went to the Spaceworks facility where we saw the place that the F-1 engines from the Apollo program were restored. Jim, why did Bezos' expeditions come to the Cosmosphere? That's,
3: that's a great question. We had the, the good fortune of Bezos' expeditions contracting with the Cosmosphere to do the, the original conservation of, of the F-1 engines. And there were three reasons why we were chosen. The first and foremost was, was because of our expertise, our ability to do a project of this nature, which was proven through our restoration of Liberty Bell 7. That really allowed the recovery team to know that, that they were choosing a, an entity that had done this before. They knew that we had a successful track record. The other is because of, of who we are. A, a museum that uh, exhibits and educates about the history of space exploration, and B, because of our our education value, they knew that we were going to uh, utilize this opportunity as a way to educate the public and to teach the public about not only the, the expedition, the recovery, and the, and the conservation, but the history. So those three things really factored into uh, Bezos Expeditions choosing us uh, to do the uh, conservation work.
2: Talk about the restoration process. Like, What was that like? How sure. long were they out there
3: looking for yeah. the pieces? So the, if, if you think of the, the project in three phases, the first phase was the discovery. So they really had to go to where they thought the debris field was and using side-scan sonar sweep the debris field, the area of the debris field, and then hope that they would get some hits that they could then study the the radar, the frequency, and determine whether what they were seeing was indeed an an F-1 engine. So that, that was the first step. Then the second step was the recovery itself. The discovery was done in 2012, and then in March of 2013, the expedition set out to do the recovery side. They were out at sea for just under a month, just about four weeks, and they had studied the data and utilizing the trajectory, the azimuth, um, taking into account factor of error, the NASA charted impact points. They thought they knew where the area was. What's what's really amazing is that no one ever saw the impact. So there, there literally was was no eyeballs on impact really? sites. So they were they were pretty certain that where they were looking was indeed the impact the sole objective was to recover something from Apollo 11. But in this specific area, you had six other missions yeah. that the S one C the first stage splashed down in this area. So they were, they were mining a huge area, huge debris field. And the first time that they ever saw the engines was when they dropped the ROV for the first time. The, the, Crew itself did not know what to expect. I mean, no one knew whether these were going to be intact, whether they were going to be in shreds, what they were going to find when they when they got down. So when they when they dropped for the first time, and and this is the the area they're working in, not only was large uh, in in a square mile sense, but it was also incredibly deep. So you're talking about a ship that is up three miles from the surface, and an ROV that is working beneath three miles. And the first time they dropped in, they, they saw components and parts, and they knew that the, the engines had, had broken apart. Um, it's it's theorized that, that the, the thrust plate, the main plate that the engines were attached to in the S1C, probably remained untacked until they hit the surface. Um, the S1C is a 110 feet tall Um 30 foot in diameter, but was mostly aluminum, so it probably broke up as as it began its descent. Um, And and we're talking a descent from about 42 miles high. Yeah. Um, The the thrust plate and the five engines probably remained intact until they hit the, the water. The surface of the ocean. They probably impacted going you know, somewhere between 400 and 600 miles an hour. Um, and, and when you're hitting that fast from yeah. that altitude, that's like hitting concrete. So they they hit, they decelerated, and then as the the air became lighter, as oxygen dissipated, the further they went, then they reaccelerated. Uh, so again, they they didn't know what they were going to get. They quickly realized that many of these components were embedded three to five feet in the seafloor. So they were going to have to dredge them out, um, maneuver the the two ROVs, uh, and then pull these up. So they they dropped, and then heavy seas set in. So they they were riding out the storm for for about four or five days, um, and then had a a two- to three-week period where they were working around the clock um, through the night, uh, recovering the artifacts. So they, what they would do is this, this ship was state-of-the-art to combat the fact that, you know, you had the ship moving in different directions on the surface. And then the ROV down, the, the ship was equipped with thrusters that allowed it um, to hold a position even in, in heavier seas and, and winds. It also had a winch that mechanically let out and then... Retracted, so the ROVs um, were not bobbing, bobbing up and up down as, as the ship went up and down. So they dropped two ROVs. Um, the two would work um, in tandem, uh, providing obviously the light as well as the the camera. But then these were the tools, the the workers on the seafloor. So you had two operators on the ship who were almost like they were playing a video game manipulating these robots and the arms and the tools uh, to dredge and then shackle hook, hook the engine components up and then the hoist would drop a, a huge recovered basket that basically was about the size of this room and they would Put wow the, they would put the components in the basket because it took about an hour and 45 minutes to get down to the bottom and then it took about another hour and a half to get up so once you were down you weren't you weren't going to go back up so um, they would literally drag all this around pick wow. the components and then put them in the baskets um, so after uh, you know a period of, of about a month um, being at sea uh, they were able to recover um, I believe it was 18. Prime components. So, they recovered five thrust chambers, uh, which, for all practicality, is the engine. uh, That's that's where the combustion started. Uh, They recovered five thrust chambers, uh, three liquid oxygen oxygen domes with injector plates. Uh, They recovered two turbo pumps, two uh, heat exchangers. Uh, and then uh, one nozzle section, so about 25,000 pounds. Wow. Uh, So when they they finished the recovery process, they still at that point didn't know whether they had an engine from Apollo 11 or not. They brought the components uh, back uh, to Canaveral, um, where the Cosmosphere oversaw the offloading. And then the artifacts were transported from Canaveral, where it was about 78 degrees on the day they returned uh, to Hutchinson, where the night before they arrived at our facility, we got about six to eight inches of snow <laughs> and we're offloading in 32 degree temperatures. So oh my quite, gosh. quite a swing. Yeah. Um, and then once here, we began the, the process of conservation. And that project uh, took us two and a half years. Wow. So the
2: restoration process, that's, I mean, that's pretty involved. It is. Um, because the, those engines had spent, you know, almost a half century at the bottom right. of the seafloor. Right. And the, you know, the, between the salt water and the pressures, what does that do to artifacts like, you know, the, the, the engines or the Liberty Bell 7? It,
3: it sure doesn't do many any favors, that's for sure. <laughs> it really depends on the material. Um, and, and and let me explain so for instance uh, uh, Liberty belt 7 the exterior of that spacecraft is, is titanium Renade 47 I think it's, it's basically a nickel alloy incredibly robust materials but on the inside um, you're dealing more with aluminums and and weaker materials and so at that depth you're you're combating three things you're combating pressure you're, you're combating salt. And then you are combating electrolytic activity. Um, so there's a lot of electric energy um, at those depths, and that electrolytic activity begins attacking um, the material. So, for instance, Liberty Bell Seven. Initially, um, the 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 heat shield, which was made of beryllium, was intact. And so that electrolytic activity attacked the, the beryllium heat shield, and, and that was really the, the sacrificial lamb, if you will. So huh. think of a big battery. That was the, the anode. So once the the beryllium heat shield um, was basically disintegrated, that moved interior to inside the, the capsule and began attacking the instrument panel. In the case of the F-1, things that were aluminum, uh, stainless steel, Uh, copper, that salt and electrolytic activity did severe corrosion and damage. Fortunately, the vast majority of that engine is is made up of um, incredible material called Inconel, and that is a super alloy, um, one of the strongest materials known to man, and and really withstood the, the corrosive issues at that depth. The other factor was there's, uh, it, it, as it relates specifically to the F1s, um, depending on where they were found, there were heavy deposits of calcium. So the calcium, in, especially in, in the, uh, the clay of the seafloor, um, became embedded in those artifacts and began attacking um, the artifacts as well. And so you could, you could literally see if a, if a thrust chamber had been lying on its side or you know, embedded to, to a degree in, in the seafloor, you could see the corrosion line. Um, where the, the artifact was in the seafloor. You could see the, the, the corrosive nature of of the calcium deposits uh, in the seafloor.
2: Wow. That's, I would, you know, calcium, I guess, I've never really thought that yeah. it could be damaging to something. You know, we're always told, get your calcium, it's good for your bones. <laughs> Not good for spacecraft. Good to know. So, Spaceworks doesn't just restore artifacts, it, you know, preserves the legacy and the mm-hmm.
3: history of the space race. Why is that so important? Well, early on, uh, the Cosmosphere realized that, that there's only a finite number of, of, spacecraft or space artifacts available. Um, and while those artifacts are well placed in museums, uh, throughout the country and even throughout the world, unfortunately not everybody's going to be able to, to see and appreciate it, uh, and it, it's important for us to be able to produce something that is historically accurate, uh, high fidelity, so the public can understand what got us to the moon, how we explored space, to hopefully spark or ignite a, a, an interest. Um, you know, if somebody is, is watching um, the movie Apollo 13, and is inspired because of what was accomplished in bringing that crew back uh, safely, um, then, then in part we, we've done our job. And so we always want to ensure that we're doing whatever it is, whether it's, it's through our education programs, our exhibits here, or fabricating replicas, doing something um, to preserve the history, to be able to tell the story, but inspire that next generation.
4: commemoration of what the real meaning of Apollo is to the world, we'd like to uncover a plaque that has been on the leg of our spacecraft that we have climbed down many times over the last three days. And I'll read what that plaque says to you. First of all, it has a picture of a well, two pictures, one of the North America and one of South America. The other covers the other half of the world, including Africa, Asia, Europe, Australia. covers the North Pole and the South Pole. In between these two hemispheres, we have a pictorial view of the moon, a pictorial view of where all the Apollo landings have been made. So that when this plaque is seen again by others who come, they will know where it all started. The words are human man completed its first exploration of the moon, December 1972 A.D. May the spirit of peace in which we came be reflected in the lives of all mankind. It signed Eugene A. Thurman, Ronald E. Evans, Erickson H. Smith, and most prominently Richard M. Nixon, President of the United States of America. This is our commemoration that will be here until someone like us, until some of you out there who are the promise of the future, come back to read it again as a friend of the exploration
2: and the meaning of Apollo. Apollo 17 we you know we started today's episode off with a discussion of the first mission around the moon so i think it's fitting that we're ending with the last apollo mission to the moon um, december is kind of a big month for it space is, history absolutely so it's really a you know, great opportunity to sit down and talk i want to talk about the legacy of the apollo program and also you know future flights sure. but first apollo 17 talk to me about it
3: Man. Apollo seventeen is is really a, a bittersweet mission. It's it's a, a historic mission, obviously, um, in that two astronauts explored the surface of the moon. They they went further and, and did more exploration than previous missions. But it but it's absolutely bittersweet because it's the last time that any human has touched foot on the surface of the moon. I, I guarantee you that. The astronauts, you know, Gene Cernan and, and Jack Schmidt, thought that there would be another mission to the lunar surface long before we have even started to talk about going back to the moon. The fact that we're sitting here in 2017 and it was 1972, December 1972, when that, that mission left the surface um, is, is really a shame. So on one hand, while that mission is, is very historic and, and one that um, I look at fondly, it's, it's one that as a country, um, we need to realize that too much time has passed in between and, and it's, it's time for this country to start moving forward again uh, and to doing what we do and that's explore and that's to chart new territory try new things and, and unfortunately we've, we've lost that we've lost that inspiration and I, I hope as you know, we come up on the anniversary of that mission we can all pause for a moment take a step back and, and recognize what was accomplished during um, the Apollo program but also understand that um, it's time for this country to, to start moving forward again.
2: You know, it's one of the things that we'll talk about here a little bit at the close, but the National Space Council, you know, giving us the news that the moon is going to be a destination right. here again soon, just as kind of a stepping stone. So, hopefully, You know what, that that's will materialize. The, that's
3: the third time they've had yeah. that objective yeah. in, what, the last 20 years. Yeah. I think, you know, both, both Bushes uh, had that as an objective, and, and now it's an objective again. I'm hopeful that at some point we stop— Giving lip, providing lip service to this and actually do it. It's important for a couple of reasons. One, it's important because it begins to expand our exploration back back to where we were in, in 1972. But it also sets us on a path um, for, for far greater things, far greater exploration um, than, than we've ever considered or contemplated.
2: Well, you know, and Apollo 17, that was really the culmination of all of the flights because it was absolutely. the first time a geologist yeah. flew in space. A- so, you know, pushing the boundaries, that was something that Apollo 17 did. What What do you think the, you know, the geological role, you know, exploring the lunar geography, why was that important? You know, what did they end up doing, you know, cramming that in at the last minute, basically? Sure.
3: Well, I, I think it, it served two purposes. It... A, allowed science to progress it, it allowed a geologist to do what they do and that's that's study formations and, and rocks and the topography and um, analyze and and that was an important opportunity because it allowed humans to, to study the surface of, of another planet if you will and and to collect specimens and data um, that otherwise would have been impossible and it, it helped scientists to determine the age of the earth, and how the earth was created, what the moon was comprised of. But the other reason it was important was it was the first time that a non-aviator or uh, pilot, test pilot, played a significant role in the mission and Harrison Schmidt being a scientist and a a PhD and not a test pilot or or an aviator, um, was important in that it it signified a a shift in mindset and mentality. I think it was at that point that that NASA began to place more emphasis on the, the science and the discovery and not that you know, the the other wasn't important but for for NASA to truly achieve its objectives is going to require a new breed of, of astronauts um, that were able to, to take the the studies and the experiments to a new level well, that's something that you
2: know whatever the legacy of the shuttle program is the amount of scientists that flew on
3: those missions is pretty staggering absolutely absolutely I, I think it um, the shuttle was was incredibly important from that perspective, and Apollo 17 was was that first step that led to um, all the science and the discoveries and the testing, the incredibly important things that were accomplished uh, during the shuttle program.
2: One other thing, you know, earlier today when I was just milling around downstairs, there are some artifacts from Apollo 17, Correct. just even on display before you go into the hall of space. Yes. Um, and those flew
3: to the moon. Right. So we're, again, Cosmosphere is fortunate to have some pretty significant artifacts, including some Apollo 17 artifacts. We have a, a exhibit in our rotunda that, that displays uh, some of the artifacts from that mission. We have uh, photographic hardware from the mission. Uh, the docking uh, target from that mission is on display. And then when you go down into the Hall of Space, we have... Two fenders from the Apollo 17 lunar rover on display, and, and that has a unique story into itself. The one of the fenders was damaged, creating the LRV inoperable until they utilized some duct tape and clamps and, and uh, maps to create the fix. And so, along with those fenders, we also have the Albine painting "Fender Loving Care," um, depicting that that uh, fix. And so those those are incredible artifacts and and to know that uh, some of these were used on the surface of the moon and then brought back is inspiring no matter how far out we go we're always going to have a use for duct tape absolutely (laughs) you've got to carry duct tape with you it was proven on numerous missions in the space program the importance of duct tape
2: well, you know, when we talk about Apollo 13, well, I'm sure we'll have to mention duct tape. Absolutely. That. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So what are your thoughts on SpaceX announcing a circumlunar flight? And then more recently, we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, the announcement the for the third time, essentially, yeah, in the last right. decade, you know, decade and a half,
3: that the U.S. is going to be returning to sure. the moon. What are what are your thoughts? Well, on this? I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by SpaceX's announcement in my opinion, SpaceX and, and Blue Origin uh, are really going to be the, the forerunners as it relates to space exploration. Um, you also have the Bigelow Aerospace mm-hmm. and, and Virgin Galactic and Sierra Nevadas. Um, they'll be players as well, but um, SpaceX and, and Blue Origin have the, the capital uh, to back it up and to do it. And I think, I think the private sector is, is going to lead the way. And so for them, For them to announce it to me is is incredibly exciting. They're not held back by the bureaucratic red tape. Um, They they can cut through that. And if if you know a SpaceX or Blue Origin announces they're going to do something, you can you can rest assured that that it's going to happen. As it relates to to our announcement. Cautiously optimistic, I, I suppose, is what I would say. Again, you know, we, we have seen these announcements, um, we've, we've heard the, the rhetoric. Unfortunately, I'll take kind of a cynical, pessimistic point of view, and I'll believe it when I see it. Exactly. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that it will happen, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I'm fairly certain that SpaceX of Blue Origin will accomplish that feat long before NASA and, and the government space program does.
2: Something else going along with the announcement that we're, you mm-hmm. know, the National Space Council wanting to go back to the moon, um, Representative Bridenstine, mm-hmm. you know, his first part of his confirmation hearing was basically last week at the time of right. recording this. And if, you know, the contentious nature of that confirmation hearing is any indicator of what we're looking at going forward, you know, could end up being a SpaceX and Blue Origin beating the US back.
3: Absolutely. I, so. I just I, I just think there there are too many political games being played and the the appetite to put the money towards uh, an endeavor of getting back to the moon is, is not what it once was. And mm-hmm. I again I think it's gonna take a Blue Origin or a SpaceX to do it and before A our government and B our you know the, the public at large gets excited about it again. Fortunately, both companies have, have the capital and the ability and, and the, the wherewithal to, to make it happen. Um, but until they do, and excuse my language, kick you know, our government in the butt, um, I'm skeptical. Obviously,
2: reusability is going to play a critical mm-hmm. role. Um, and returning to the moon and going beyond to you know Mars and, and elsewhere in the solar system. December is also the anniversary of SpaceX landing an orbital class booster mm-hmm. for the first time back in 2015 and then also recovering a Dragon capsule for the first time back in 2010. What are your thoughts on those developments and where you see the industry moving?
3: Those are all incredibly positive things because it decreases the cost. Um, significantly. I mean, one of the reasons why the shuttle is no longer flying is because of the significant cost associated with flying the, the orbiter. The way that the SpaceX and the Blue Origins have been able to go about it is is they've engineered hardware that is efficient, um, effective, but also is not so astronomical in its, its price tag mm-hmm. that it, it's it, become ultimately cost prohibitive. So I think these things are incredibly positive and will only allow those companies to continue to improve and advance um, at a much quicker pace and and at a much cheaper price tag.
2: What do you think the legacy of Apollo will be 50 years
3: from now? I'm hoping that the legacy is, is that was the first step that, that was taken Um, as humans explore the universe and beyond I hope people 50 years from now are able to look back on that and say that was a tremendous period of time when amazing accomplishments were achieved and that it was done with the entire country and world watching and hoping and praying and I'm hopeful that we can get back to that point where collectively we as humans cooperate in an endeavor um, that allows us to finish what Apollo started, not finish, but take up the torch that Apollo had and and continue to move forward. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Good old Mother Earth is
4: right back in the center. Bob, while well, we've got a quiet moment here as I go to de- deploy that AP charge, I'd just like to, to any part of Apollo 17 or, or any part of Apollo that has been a success thus so far, it's probably for the most part due to the thousands of people in the aerospace industry who have given a great deal, besides dedication, and besides effort, and besides professionalism, to make it all a reality. And I would just like to thank them. Because what we've done here, and what has been done in the past, as a matter of fact, what has been done for 200 years, you've got to contribute to the spirit of the group of people who have flown the aerospace industry. And I, God bless you, and thank you.
1: All
4: right, Dean, and uh, we thank you guys. Okay. Yeah, we're just two little, two little twinkle toes here. There's a, a lot that goes to getting this rubber running out here that we don't have much to do with. There might be someone else that has something to do with it, too. And I've been reading his sign, maybe not from him directly, but his in spirit as we run up and down that ladder. And God's Godspeed,
2: the crew of Apollo 17. And if he's lived I'd like to thank him, too. If you're new to the space shot, I would appreciate if you could subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more people find out about the show. Also, I appreciate everyone that interacts with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can follow The Space Shot on Facebook, just click one of the links in the show notes, and you'll get daily space history in your feed. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.